The treatment of women in the Missouri Capitol has become an increasingly dominant topic as of late, and State Representative Kip Kendrick has some ideas on how to change things up. The Columbia Democrat joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum of St. Louis Public Radio. My colleague Joe Manis is taking some well-deserved time off on this Monday in August, and I am bringing you solo my interview with State Representative Kip Kendrick of Columbia. The first-term representative is on a task force of sorts looking into sexual harassment policy and the House internship program. As I'm sure many of you will recall, this has become an increasingly big issue in Missouri politics after the resignation of House Speaker John Deal, a Republican, and State Senator Paul Lavoda, a Democrat. I first, though, asked Kendrick about his upbringing in Northeast Missouri. I must admit to our listeners that Northeast Missouri politics has been kind of a pet passion of mine since I started in the political journalism game back in 2006. Kendrick is a native of Monroe City, Missouri, which is situated in a county that has been historically Democratic and is now more Republican. We talked a little bit about his upbringing and what made him get into elective politics in the first place. Here's what he had to say about that. So uh, originally from Monroe City, Missouri, a small town northeast Missouri. So graduated from Monroe City High School, Monroe City R1. I've been in Columbia for about 12 years now, a little over 12 years, and uh, represent the 45th district in the Missouri House of Representatives. So uh, 45th is pretty much central, north central Columbia. What were you doing before you decided to run for office? I know that uh, unlike many battles for this particular seat when it was open, um, it there was no like primary and there was no general election opponent for you. So what were you doing before you decided to run for the state house? And what was kind of what was kind of your reaction when you didn't face any opposition or what should right. have been a, a competitive primary campaign? Sure. Uh, so my time is pretty much split up between the social service field and higher education as well. Um, so eight years social service, four years, four plus years in uh, working in higher education. And um, also very involved in the community, uh, president of Benton Stevens Neighborhood Association for a little over six years, uh, did a lot of neighborhood organizing uh, in and around Columbia, worked with the um, City of Columbia, actually, on developing the neighborhood leadership program. And, uh, you know, I announced, I guess, a, over a year out from the election with the support and endorsement of uh, Representative Chris Kelly. And, and Chris had been in the General Assembly for a number of years, had a tremendous amount of respect on both sides of the aisle. And I got out and, and worked hard very early on, knocking doors well over a year out, um, having listening sessions around the district. But, you know, I, I will say I was very much surprised when I didn't have a primary or a general challenge uh, coming from the 45th. It is a, it's a very involved district. Um, I'd like to say it's my intimidating personality, but uh, but I'm not very intimidating at all. So I know it wasn't that. Uh, I would like to think it was probably my hard work and getting out there and uh, and 
meeting the people, knocking doors, and, and getting my name around. The, the reason I ask uh, uh, that particular question is the 45th was essentially the 25th district before redistricting. I know the boundaries have changed a little bit, but it's it's clearly like the most Democratic uh, House district in Boone County. And in 2008, there was a pretty vibrant three-way primary. And in 2004, when the seat was open, again, I think there was like a five or a six-way primary. So when I saw that when Representative Kelly decided not to run again and there was a no-way primary for the seat, it was just kind of surprising to me. But again, it must have been your intimidating personality. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's uh, historically the 25th was represented by, uh, you know, Vicki Reback Wilson, uh, Judy Baker, Mary Still. It has a strong history of uh, very good representation in the House. Um, and uh, when, I, when I didn't have a primary, you know, come end of the day, March 25th, uh, when filing closed, I really had a decision to make at that point. And, you know, some people saying, hey, you should sit back and enjoy your free time while you still have it. Uh, but, you know, that's not my personality. And uh, I still got out and continued to knock doors, continue to have listening sessions. And really, that's what it was. It was about me listening to uh, business community, to uh, organization, biz- uh, community leaders, and trying to figure out what my uh, initiatives would be in my first session, You really using that time to, uh, to craft uh, what my policy recommendations and uh, what my drive would be for the first term in office. Now, one of the reasons why I think I wanted to have you on the show is when I was working for the Columbia Tribune back in the mid-2000s, one of the areas of coverage that I really enjoyed covering, which is kind of a redundant way of, of saying I enjoyed covering something, was uh, Northeast Missouri politics. Back in 2006, for example, the most competitive state Senate election happened in Northeast Missouri. There was a sure. competitive state representative race. And both of those were were won by Democrats because it may not seem apparent now when you look at the composition of the legislature, but Northeast Missouri is historically Democratic and was Democratic as far as a majority, um, as far as the delegation, as far back as like 2008 and 2010. I saw that on Twitter you made a speech I think, in Northeast Missouri recently. Uh, before we kind of get into the, the political dynamics of there, tell me a little bit about uh, that, that speech and kind of what you encountered and whether it was sort of, a, sort of a homecoming for you, so to speak. Well, it was. You know, it's always great to be back up in Northeast Missouri. Um, there was a turnout of 100-plus people, uh, mostly Democrats, obviously. It was uh, invited several clubs, Democratic clubs, uh, to Monroe City, to kind of bring everyone together and talk to them about my first session in office, what I experienced, and how I found ways to be effective. Um, the Really, the primary part of my speech was to, to try to be optimistic as possible and, again, focus on how I was uh, able to be effective in a super minority. But then it was really fielding questions, uh, important questions about infrastructure, about ethics, about the Missouri Department of Conservation, uh, asking questions about education, what we're doing uh, in regards to underfunding K-12 and higher education, uh, having an important discussion as well on Medicaid expansion. So everything that I discussed was, I believe I could deliver that same message to a room full of Republicans and it would still resonate. And I think that's what is important 
to get out to the state of Missouri is I really do think that the imbalance of power right now in Jefferson City uh, gives control to a very a small group of people who necessarily are not representing what is best for the for the state of Missouri. Does it surprise you just as as someone who grew up in Monroe County that you know the the county that was one of the only places that voted for George McGovern in 1972 and it has, is historically one of the most democratic counties in the state now has 100% republican representation in the general assembly. I mean, it's a surprise to me because again, going back to like 2008, 2006, it was a democratic stronghold on a state level. Now it seems to have at least shifted when it comes to state house and state senate. Like what do you, why do you think that has happened and do you think that there's any possibility that that region can revert back to form? And if so, how do how do you do that after it, there's been some sort of backsliding as far as the, the composition in Jefferson City. Right. You know, I think it has a lot to do with messaging and uh, messaging from Republicans top down nationwide messaging and also uh, the lack thereof on the Democratic side. Um, we're not doing a good job of making our case. Uh, I do believe a lot of people in that area uh, potentially are uh, focused in on two or three very divisive issues that they think maybe rule uh, the legislature in Jefferson City. And, you know, my case is, hey, that's that's not really what happens in Jefferson City. Uh, those two or three very divisive issues are used mainly as, uh, as political tools in campaigns. And really the focus is or, or should be on what we're going to do to increase uh, funding for MoDOT so that we can actually take care of our roads here in the state of Missouri and, and maintain our bridges. And uh, what we're going to do to provide health care to uh, 250,000 individuals, over 250,000 individuals who currently fall in that coverage gap. Uh, what we're going to do to expand our economic base in the state of Missouri. And once you really drill down and talk in depth about these issues, you understand that Many in Northeast Missouri will agree with the Democratic platform, but again, it's uh, it's the messaging that uh, that's the issue right now. And sometimes it's had hard to have those in-depth conversations unless you have you know a couple hours blocked uh, time to to speak to large groups like that. Uh, so it's it's going to take a, a real effort from the uh, from the state Democratic Party to make inroads in in rural Missouri again. Do you think that? the Democrats are ever going to be gain a significant foothold in the legislature if they don't put efforts into winning historically Democratic seats in places not only like Northeast Missouri, but also Central Missouri and Southeast Missouri. Because the example that I always point to is the district that includes most of Monroe and most of Pike. 10, 15 years ago, there would be no chance a Republican could win that district because of how historically Democratic those two counties are. I believe in 2014, the Republican won it with, I think, over 75 percent of the vote, which signals to me that the Democratic Party didn't put a lot of effort or organization or messaging into winning those type seats. I mean, is it going to take putting some effort and messaging into those types of seats in order for the Democrats to at least get out of the super minority, let alone get a majority again? Absolutely. We don't uh, we don't gain leverage in the Missouri House of Representatives or the Senate without making uh, significant gains in outstate Missouri and uh, northeast Missouri and 
you know, in southwest, southeast Missouri, northwest Missouri, we, we have to win those areas back, and we have to do that uh, first and foremost through messaging, making sure that uh, individuals understand what we stand for. And, uh, and we have to stop allowing the, the Republicans to basically do our messaging for us. Well, let's shift gears into something that's a little bit more recent and something that I think is on the minds of, of legislators uh, across the state, and that's the culture in Jefferson City. Uh, for our listeners who have kind of just tuned in right now, there have been two high-profile resignations, one of the Republican Speaker of the House, John Deal, another of State Senator Paul Lavoda, a Democrat from Independence. Both of them, um, they, they resigned for different reasons, but it's brought up the issue of how women are treated in Jefferson City and how sturdy the sexual harassment regulations are, both in the House and in the Senate. Now, uh, Representative Kendrick, you're on a committee or kind of like an ad hoc committee of sorts that are looking at the intern policies in Jefferson City. Tell us a little bit about what you have found so far, what sort of preliminary ideas have been brought up, and where you feel some of the ideas either are good or are lacking in certain areas. Uh, sure. L- let me give you a little bit of background, I guess, on the work group. Uh, so I was assigned to the work group in, in May as a result of the, uh, the scandal involving the Speaker of the House. And uh, at the time I was assigned, it was being called a committee, and then it started being called a work group. And, you know, being somewhat new to the process, I questioned why that happened. And a few people told me, well, maybe it went from a committee to a work group in order to potentially keep press from coming to the meetings as a way to allow kind of unguarded conversation in the work group meetings. So I thought, okay, well, maybe that's the case. Um, but since then, the work group has not actually met. We've never met uh, as a group. Uh, so I think maybe the move from a committee to a work group was to keep press from meetings that never actually happened, potentially. Um, but, you know, as frustrating as the process is, and it has been for me, um, I, I've not use that as an excuse to do nothing. I, I represent the 45th district, as I said, with as three higher education institutions. It has University of Missouri, Stevens College, Columbia College. MU sends three quarters of the interns to the Capitol, and it, it really is my responsibility to act. Uh, so I began meeting with uh, university officials, with uh, Title IX specialists, attorneys, I met with former interns and current interns from the past session to try to understand really what the problem is, to identify policy gaps that exist, and then to draft substantial policy changes to be implemented to really get at the heart of the issue. And the issue is the abuse of power, pure and simple. That's what, it's, that's what it comes down to. It's about the power differential that exists between elected officials and staff and interns underneath those elected officials. And for us to claim that the responsibility for change lies with the interns is irresponsible. And it's very, it's, to me, it's unacceptable. Now, before we kind of get into some of the initial uh, suggestions, both by you and by others, I want to play a clip from House Speaker Todd Richardson when I asked him when he was on our podcast. Uh, what I asked him when he was on our podcast was just sort of 
trying to get a handle on why this type of behavior happens. And I asked him whether it was the fact that there is an overriding culture and an environment that causes neutral or normal people to, to do bad things, or whether voters are just electing, frankly, flawed and morally bankrupt people to Jefferson City. Here's what he had to say when I asked him that question. I think it's a very difficult question to answer. And I think you could ask the same question in any other business or environment that experiences the same these same kinds of problems. Um, but I think, you know, clearly the things uh, that were mentioned in that article are, are very serious charges and unacceptable um, kinds of activities. And so we have a responsibility as stewards of the institution right now to try to make it better. Now, what he was referring to when he mentioned the article was this very in-depth article from the Kansas City Star recounting how women in the Capitol, which includes interns, staffers, lobbyists, etc., had been subject to pretty extreme doses of sexual harassment. So I'll kind of ask you a similar question, like, why do you think this behavior persists in Jefferson City? Because it's, it's behavior that's happened for decades, but it seems like nobody has stopped it or stamped it out completely. Like, why do you think it happens? Well, I, I think you hit it, uh, the nail on the head there. And that's what I kept hearing time and again, uh, was this, this behavior has existed. It's been happening forever. Um, and I almost, I, I, I thought that that maybe was an excuse for allowing it to continue to happen. It goes without saying that the culture in Jefferson City has been permissive for far too long. Um, I can't really speak for others. I I don't know what drives individuals to this behavior, but I do believe that there are a few different different realities in Jefferson City that play into it. The relaxed culture in Jefferson City, the permissive culture, uh, the egos and the newfound power that comes with being in an elected position, uh, the reality that many individuals are away from their families, away from their homes for weeks on end uh, to be at the Capitol, and then also just the amount of alcohol that uh, passes around the receptions every evening. And I know that the issue isn't always at the receptions or after, it's also in the building. And I think that comes back to the ego and and the power trip that a lot of uh, individuals are on in the Capitol. Yeah. And I, I, I think that you can't say like in like environmental things don't play a role in this. Like if you have just an abundance of alcohol that people can just consume very cheaply or for free, and they are away from home, and you know there are other structural things that that you just mentioned. I, I can't imagine that doesn't play a role in you know making people do bad things. But at the same time, I'm hesitant to point to you know lobbyist gifts or campaign contribution or alcohol or being away from home as excuses for behavior because, as you kind of mentioned, the the responsibility ultimate ultimately lies with the person who is doing the sexual harassment. And in this case, it's it's legislators, apparently. And it just seems like I, I don't want to like let them off the hook because there's environmental factors at play. I'm sure you don't either, as you kind of... No, absolutely not. Yeah. And again, it comes back to the power dynamic. Um, and as I said, the ego, I think, really plays a huge part in this. Um, and, you know, my two biggest concerns, I guess, moving forward, um, you know, as we 
potentially implement policy changes are the p- potential that one that um, that the onus for change is placed on the interns in the higher education institutions and and two that the uh, final outcome may merely be administrative shuffling that gives the illusion of change and I think that goes back to the permissive culture I believe this has happened for far too long uh, there's been I guess somewhat of an acceptance just because we've never really made uh, attempts in the past to change this behavior. But I think if we pass up this opportunity right now, then we are we're missing out on a key moment when we can make sure that we return the focus of internships on the educational experience, but also, uh, and importantly, restore some of the reputation for the House of Representatives. So some of the ideas that have kind of been preliminarily uh, proposed includes like an omnibudsman, quote unquote, to handle complaints from people who have been sexually harassed, as well as a GPA requirement. Obviously, there was the the whole brouhaha over a dress code that got scuttled pretty quickly. Um, But I noticed that you also put a proposal out there that essentially puts the kibosh on any relationships between like a legislator and an intern or a legislator and a subordinate staff member. Uh, Before I ask questions about that, just kind of walk me through your ideas on that and why you think it would be a good structural move to do. Right. So that was one of the glaring gaps in policy that existed. And some people say, you know, well, it's a no-brainer that a representative should not be having a romantic relationship with an intern or a staff. And, of course, you know, I, I agree with that, but it is not in policy, and it has to be in policy. Corporations uh, really started implementing a workplace relationship policy in the late 80s, early 90s. And at that point, it was more of a blanket uh, policy where there are no uh, – where basically it banned relationships – among all staff members. And they started getting smarter and HR and general counsel started realizing that that may not be realistic. So they really tried to drill in at the issue. And the issue again is the power dynamic, the power differential that exists in organizations, corporations, and clearly in the House of Representatives. And the version 2.0 of the workplace relationship policy really addressed the the supervisor-supervisee relationship. So basically banning any relationship among an employee and uh, the supervisor. Uh, Version 3.0, I guess, what I came up with, the Workplace Relationship Policy for the House of Representatives, uh, also includes interns. It basically, it bans romantic or sexual relationships with all interns and staff for whom that representative uh, supervises. So how would that be enforced, though? Because first of all, I mean, I, I'm being hypothetical here, but when someone's accused of having a, a, a romantic relationship with either one of those uh, sets of people, either an intern or a subordinate staff member, they may just deny that it that it happened. And how would you gather proof that that's actually occurring? And what would the consequence be if it's found out to be true that they're, they're having a romantic relationship with some one of those two groups of people? Right. So uh, when I when I updated, when I made the policy recommendations, I embedded the changes in the intern policy handbook and the house policy handbook. I wanted to make sure I actually weaved the recommendations into existing policy so that you know it gave them uh, gave them some place to stay permanently. Uh, and so the workplace relationship policy basically ties into the sexual harassment policy in how it's reported 
in how it's handled, uh, what repercussions will exist. But it goes beyond sexual harassment policy. So sexual harassment deals with unwanted behaviors. The workplace relationship policy deals with inappropriate relationships, whether the, the behavior is wanted or unwanted, consensual or unconsensual. And that's important. So without getting too far into the weeds, a couple of the main points on my workplace relationship policy that you can find uh, specifically in the House Policy Handbook, or recommendations anyway, uh, it requires a signature. And a signature is very important uh, for all members of House of Representatives. It, uh, it basically does not allow the uh, representative to claim ignorance of the policy. They're agreeing, it, uh, agreeing that they've read it and they will abide by the terms by fixing their signature to it. It also has a disclosure agreement which is important to the repercussions. So the more people I met with and uh, having conversations about the political reality of implementing such a policy, I understand it's, it's difficult to, um, to basically have a vote to remove someone from office if they are in violation, because then it becomes a political game potentially. So the disclosure agreement requires disclosure of the relationship if and when it happens to the uh, chief clerk or to the director of human resources. Now, I'm, uh, I understand that the disclosure probably will not happen, but if and when this comes to light, that the relationship comes to light and is, uh, is put out there in the media, then it's not only about the act, the sexual act, but it also becomes a cover-up the act of covering up the, the act because they signed the document saying that they were going to disclose this relationship. They didn't, so they obviously covered it up. And the immense and immediate uh, pressure publicly will force the individual out of office um, pretty quickly. Yeah. Let's just say, though, somebody is, I, I don't want to use the word brave, but, you know, decides to disclose it voluntarily that they are having a relationship with an intern or a staff member to the clerk like what would it still would be in violation of that policy presumably what then would be their consequences could they get you know censured could they potentially be expelled from office or is it more of like as you mentioned that it'll be such an embarrassing revelation that they may just resign voluntarily because of that revelation, basically. Right. So at the point that it's reported to the clerk or to the director of human resources, it must go through an internal investigation as a sexual harassment complaint would do. And that's important. Uh, again, it does require, it would put immediate pressure, public pressure on an individual to step down. But there are also things that caucuses can do. So the Democratic caucus and Republican caucus can take their own measures. And we're having this discussion internally right now in Democratic caucus of how we would respond. Would we, uh, would we remove people from committees? If they were in leadership position, would we remove them from a leadership position? Uh, so that there are things that can be done internally uh, through the caucus that are important. Uh, but the public pressure will be will be swift. So as far as the other preliminary uh, suggestions that have been brought up, I guess, from the Republican side that I mentioned before, omnibudsmen, GPA requirements, other things like that, what's kind of your take on some of those things which are, as I mentioned, preliminary? They may change 
by the end of the process, but they have been put out publicly at this point. Uh, sure. There has been a, a general outline put forward by uh, Republicans and, and Representative Angler. Um, I wish it included more detail, and I, I wish that uh, I could figure out where my policy recommendations fit into the overall uh, outline that was that was put forward. Haven't been able to do that yet. Um, but I, you know, I, I think the ombudsman is uh, is potentially a, a good move uh, for the House of Representatives. I have some concerns if being a, um, a House, an existing House member, this may be, we may need this to be a voluntary position for someone from the outside who acts as the ombudsman. Um, I, in my recommendations I put forward, uh, included creating an intern coordinating uh, committee. And I think that's important. Currently, there are two coordinators, intern coordinators, one from each caucus. Uh, they're House members. House members have a lot on their plate already, so I do believe it is important to expand that to a committee. So my recommendations was the intern coordinator from each caucus, but then also the legislative assistant from each caucus. And those LAs are, theoretically, they're really probably down there before the representatives and thereafter within, in the case of term limits, right? So they, they have a lot of the institutional knowledge. Uh, they're they're a constant in the building, and they deal specifically more with the interns than often the uh, the representatives do. So I think it's important for them to have a voice on the, on the committee. So I don't know if this is one of the recommendations that have been put forth preliminarily, but when we were talking with Representative Gloria Brown on our show a few weeks ago, uh, she mentioned this anecdote from when she was a vice president at Mastercard. Uh, Representative Brown was the vice president of IT for MasterCard, which is, I think, a, a fairly male-dominated field. She was, I think, a rare woman in a, a position of leadership. This is what she said should happen when there was a sexual harassment situation in corporate America. When I was at MasterCard, we had very stringent rules, and the rules said you are a man mandatory reporter. As an officer of the company, you're a mandatory reporter. If you're walking down the street down the hall, and you hear someone say something that you think has anything to do with sexual harassment, you must immediately report it so that it can be taken care of immediately. I said this to our caucus members. I said, we, as a House members, we are mandatory reporters. We must do it. So two questions on that particular point. Do you think that that should be a part of any intern policy? And just more generally, do you feel like that's not occurring now that when a legislator hears about, you know, a certain situation where there's sexual harassment or whatnot, it's just not being reported as it should be, as it would be reported in corporate America? Well, first, yeah, I, I don't believe it's reported nearly as often as it should be. Part of that, I think, is uh, and what I wanted to get at in my recommendations was clarifying and expanding reporting of sexual harassment and workplace relationship policies. So, so um, I didn't really, when I when I came up with my recommendations, I didn't really get into the sexual harassment too much because that had already been vetted by attorneys and it was fairly solid. Other than I did want to clarify and expand reporting, I think it's important that we that we expand the um, the mandated reporters. But it's also important and it's vital that we clarify who's mandated and who is not mandated because an intern who has been through an experience of sexual harassment 
or some other type of harassment in the building, they need to know who they can go to and who they can trust. And if that person is a mandated reporter, then in many situations, that intern may not feel comfortable going to that mandated reporter to share their story initially. So you want to make sure that the intern knows who is going to be able to keep that uh, information and confidence because that person might be a good initial outlet for them to share their conversation, for them to feel more comfortable, and then move forward to a mandated reporter to get the story out there. We only have a few minutes left. I wanted to shift gears quickly to veto session. It's now August 31st when we're recording this. Uh, the legislature will be coming back into session, I believe, on September 16th. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh-huh. There are a couple of issues that I think are looming but may not necessarily get a veto override. One of them is a so-called right-to-work bill, which um, is is kind of taking aim at labor unions. There's another bill that would ban plastic bag bans as well as minimum wage increases on a local level. One of those things is important to the St. Louis area. Another, I think, is kind of inspired by something that went out in Columbia in your neck of the woods. Just generally, what are you kind of expecting as as a Democratic legislator for veto session? Do you expect it to be kind of a, a busy time like it has been in the last couple of sessions? Or is it possible that some of these bills that I just mentioned just may not get overridden and it could be a, a, a less uh, boisterous veto session than in years past? Right. Well, I think it's going to be less boisterous uh, partly because there are much there was much fewer legislation passed this year because of uh, incidents that happened in the final week or, or came to light at least in the final week of the legislative session. So there are much fewer bills that were passed, uh, fewer vetoes as a result of that. Um, right to work obviously is very contentious. Uh, it, you know, in my mind, it's very much a union busting measure uh, that. Um, Politically, I'm not for sure if I completely understand the reason why uh, the previous question, the PQ motion in the in the Senate, was used to push this forward to get it over the finish line to be vetoed. Uh, it's going to be difficult for them to veto, uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, union members and, and everybody, uh, all constituents, need to be vocal on their uh, support of the governor's veto of the right to work. I'm not for sure if that will be brought up. They do have uh, they have a fairly steep hill to climb to, to get the votes required to override that. Uh, House Bill 722 that gets at the local control issues. Um, I ex- I've had quite a few conversations with uh, with people following this closely, and I do expect for them to try to override this uh, bill. Uh, what concerns me the most about it uh, is just I believe it's very much an overreach of, of the state uh, of the state body in, in this case. It's uh, it's people who are for local control and speak highly about local control until they're not in favor of local control. And then they want the state, uh, they want the General Assembly to, um, to overreach and to, uh, to basically limit uh, a local municipalities' ability to govern itself. Uh, th- that bill, uh, it, it has a, a strange calculus to it because, as I'm sure you know, they have now passed minimum wage increases in Kansas City and St. Louis. They kind of did it because there's a clause in the bill that says it won't preempt local minimum wage laws passed uh, that are in effect on August 28, 2015. So my question that I've been wondering is maybe they wouldn't try to override that bill because there are some attorneys and people with much fancier degrees than me 
who argue that it may be easier to knock down those um, local minimum wage increases in court without House Bill 722. Have you heard that argumentation being put forward? I mean, that that is a possibility. I've heard that argument. Uh, but I have uh, every reason to believe that, that they're going to push forward with an override at this point. Part of that bill was kind of rep- or, or not represented, I'm sorry, kind of inspired by the Columbia City Council in a way. I think that they had tried to put forward a plastic bag ban, but they decided not to. And it got the rankles up of some legislators and, and I guess, interest groups. I mean, how do you kind of feel that your city's government is kind of making legislators angry in some instances? Or should should local government make state governments upset at times by pushing the envelope like this or not pushing the envelope like this? Right. Well, I think uh, I think governance happens best when it's at the local level, uh, and the Columbia City Council had uh, was looking into a, pa- a plastic bag ban, but they also banned uh, the box. Right? It was banned the box uh, ordinance that was put forward uh, probably a little over a year ago, I guess, and that was part of House Bill 722 until it was removed in the Senate. Uh, so there were there were at least three local control issues at play, uh, really at the heart of House Bill 722. And uh, you know I'll say again, whether you agree or disagree with a plastic bag ban, and, and let me be clear, that was not going to move forward in the in the city council. It was actually tabled, and it won't go anywhere. Um, whether you agree or disagree with it. I think everybody can agree that uh, it should be up to the local elected officials to make those decisions and to uh, to govern their municipality. And um, again, I think House Bill 722 is an overreach. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. My Twitter is Jay Rosenbaum. And how can we find you on Twitter, Representative Kendrick? Yeah, absolutely. At, At KipK45. It's a little complicated, but I think that our, our listeners are smart enough to, to write that down and follow yeah. you uh, about not only your legislative exploits, but also going back in memory lane to your time in Northeast Missouri. Would you rather-